The Bible reading today is from John's Gospel, and you will find that on page 1074 of the Bibles, the Pew Bibles, just in front of you. It's under the seat in front. So it's 1074, and it's John chapter 9. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no work, no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, Jesus spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word meant scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbours and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him, how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes. The man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, He is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? they asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? 
How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know that he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know. I was blind, now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered. Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him, heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains.
All right. Hey, everyone. Uh, my name's Scott, one of the ministers here. Thanks, Glennis, for reading that uh, passage for us. And uh, I hope you have that open in front of you. It's John chapter 9. It'd be really handy to do that as we begin. Well, the man is uh, playing uh, beach volleyball down at the beach, obviously. Uh, he launches up to smash the ball, but he doesn't see that it's a seagull, and he slams the poor bird instead. Young couple are skimming stones at the edge of a lake when a guy gets down on one knee, takes out a small velvet box, and he gives it to his girlfriend. And mistakenly, she takes it from his hand and skims it across the lake, and it skips a couple of times before sinking when his heart sinks too. A lifeguard performs a dramatic rescue at the beach. Heroically, he brings the nearly drowned child to the shore, But he's the only one who hasn't realized that he's just plucked a baby seal from the sea, not a child. And a cricketer prepares to go out to bat and he he grabs a half avocado from the lunch table, mistaking it for his protector. And something doesn't quite feel right as he squishes it into position. Some of you will recognize these scenarios as from the the Specsavers commercials on TV. And you think it should have gone to Specsavers. But then uh, if you can't see properly and you try to go to Specsavers, this happens. (laughs) Maybe that's not a good idea. And then you think, uh, I know, what if Specsavers came to you, but then that happens. You think uh, not being able to see properly is a genuine problem, isn't it? No laughing matter. In fact, um, mistaken avocados and rescued seals are the very least of your problems if you can't see. Isn't that right? Day-to-day life becomes difficult. Uh, Our world is not set up for people without sight. Communication is more difficult. Movement is more difficult. Earning and learning is more difficult. Common tasks and common pleasures are more complicated without good sight. There's all sorts of problems if you cannot see clearly. And I think that's just as true in the spiritual life as well, isn't it? Spiritual eyes need to be opened if we are going to be given true sight, true insight, true belief in God, true life in His Son, the Lord Jesus. I wonder, friends, if your spiritual vision is spot on. That's what we're going to be thinking about today as we cover all of John 9 in one go. That was just expertly read to us by Glennis. Thank you. In John 9, Jesus again claims to be the light of the world. You can see that there in chapter 9, verse 5. And that really forms a neat little bookend to where we started three weeks ago in John 8, verse 12, where Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And and across that chapter, we discovered that Jesus was the true light. We thought about what it meant to be true children of God. And we heard last week, Jesus clearly claimed to be the true God. And as today we, we see Jesus heal a beggar born blind, we find out what it means to have true sight. I mean true spiritual sight. And as I queried before, I wonder if your spiritual vision is spot on. Well, as we look at this chapter, we discover quite simply that the blind will see and the seeing are often blind. The blind will see, but those who can see are so often spiritually blind. And we're introduced there in verse 1 to a man born blind, which raises a theological question amongst the disciples. But before we get to that, we are supposed to have in the back of our minds really the, the backdrop to this whole story because it's, it's still taking place in the midst of the Jewish Feast of the Tabernacles, sometimes also referred to as the Festival of Light. So think about that. Looking back, this uh, religious festival commemorated 
the time when the Old Testament people of God moved about in the wilderness, having been liberated from slavery in Egypt. And you might remember that just as the Israelites way back then camped in the desert, uh, so for the week of the Feast of the Tabernacles, Jews from all over Israel converged on Jerusalem and they, they camped in little tents or tabernacles. But this festival also looked forward to a, a new age, a messianic age, when God would send a new liberator amongst them, a, a Messiah, if you will. And amongst the key expectations of this Messiah, according to the Old Testament in places like Isaiah 35, was that the ears of the deaf would be unstopped and the eyes of the blind would be opened. And so when we're introduced to this man born blind against the backdrop of this festival, our interest is peaked, isn't it? Of course, the, uh, the disciples, they're a little blind. And so their preoccupation is with the cause of this fellow's blindness. Was it his or his parents' fault, they ask? Very common belief back then that someone's personal suffering was directly resulting from their personal sinfulness. Uh, whose sin? Was it this man or was it his parents? Uh, perhaps he committed some misdemeanor in the womb. I mean, they weren't joking around with that. A real line of thought in that culture as well, just as it remains a, a line of thought in our culture today. I mean, whenever you hear someone talk about karma, that's basically what they're saying. You did something bad in the past, either in a past life or in the past, an earlier part of this life. That's why you're experiencing something bad now. That's why you're paying for it. Now, obviously, some of our suffering can be connected to our own uh, personal rebellion, can't it? I mean, if I get caught drink driving, I lose my license, which means I lose my job. It means I lose my home. Now, that's if I'm lucky and no one else loses life or limb. If I neglect my spouse or I prove to be unfaithful, my marriage will suffer. My wife and my sons will suffer as well as me. So, of course, some connection exists, but you can't universalize that principle to say, my suffering is always connected to my sin. It might be. It might be connected to somebody else's sin and rebellion. It may just be connected to the fact we live in a fallen and broken world, or there may be no discernible reason for it whatsoever. But it's not because of karma. We don't believe in that as Christians. There are no past lives to pay for. There are no future lives to make amends in. There is just this single life. And you can sense the kind of urgency Jesus thinks about that when he says in verse 4, the night is coming. We've got to work while it's day. But in any case, he moves from the cause of this man's condition, because he's not interested in that question, to the purpose of his blindness. His condition has been permitted or allowed or caused, whatever verb you want to use, to show the work of God in his life. In other words, God is going to do something extraordinary in this life. So extraordinary that the people would be talking about it all over. And still talking about it some two millennia later. Now, just before we move on, it's probably worth saying you, you can't universalize that either. It's not the case that with our personal suffering, God is going to do something so extraordinary that people will be talking about it centuries later. I'm sure that he will do great things in our lives, in our suffering, if we let him. But let's spare ourselves sort of delusions of grandeur and just concentrate on remaining faithful in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. Now, I reckon um, all of us would have played the game sardines at one stage in our life or a version of it. Uh, you know the game, you're with a group of friends at night, you're in a house or you're inside somewhere, you turn out all the lights 
And one person hides, and then uh, you've got to find that person. And when you find them, you've got to stay next to them silently until everyone else finds them too. Now, it's actually way more fun than it sounds. And I was uh, playing it once with a bunch of youth leaders on a weekend away, and I found the guy who was hiding, and he was in the shower in the pitch black. And so by the end of it, there were 15 of us there in the shower, uh, huddling together in the pitch black. Very odd sensation, not being able to say a thing. And then the guy turned on the shower, full blast, cold water. <laughs> that was a very odd sensation too. And of course the, light went, the lights went on and you know, everybody could see again. And I'm sure you would have had that sensation somewhere in your life of being in such a dark place you could not see a thing. And then the lights go on and you're able to see again. Imagine that for the very first time. Or like Jamie was saying, imagine seeing colour for the very first time. Well, Jesus kneaded together some mud with his saliva and he anointed this blind beggar's eyes and told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, which meant scent. So Jesus sent him to scent and he washed and he went. And verse 7, he came home seeing. What a lovely little phrase. He came home seeing. The blind will see. He wasn't born blind because he sinned or his parents sinned, but his blindness provided a wonderful opportunity for God to be at work in his life and for the Messiah to hint at his coming age when the eyes of the blind are open, just as you might expect if you were a first century Jew celebrating the festival of light, the Feast of Tabernacles. Wouldn't everyone be keen to join in this celebration? Wouldn't they be equally thrilled at this marvel? I mean, his parents and his friends and neighbours, and especially the religious guys, because they all wanted God to send his saviour. Wouldn't they all be excited? Yeah, nah. And the story takes a really sad turn, which we'll get to in a moment. But this man born blind, he doesn't just see Jesus, uh, doesn't just see physically for the first time, he sees Jesus. And by the end of the chapter, he sees him very, very clearly. Uh, you think about it, at the time his eyes were first opened, he hadn't seen Jesus at all. He had just heard his voice. It wasn't until Jesus came looking for him way down in verse 35 that he first laid eyes upon his healer. But, but did you sense the second time around that the Pharisees interrogated this guy, seeing for the first time that he really started to see Jesus for who he was? Who is this man? What did he do to you? How did he do it? They're the questions that are fired at this man. Uh, in verse 11, well, they call him Jesus, but I don't know where he is. I mean, I've never seen him before. <laughs> Didn't catch a glimpse. In verse 17, uh, I think he's a prophet. But by verse 25, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know, but I, I know that I was blind and now I see. And I wonder if you detected within his cheeky retort in verse 27, why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? That the man born blind is effectively saying to them, I'm going to swap teams. I mean, this, this should be the best day of my life. I'll get my sight back. Might get reintegrated into society. Get to be a part of religious life for the first time. I understand this is going to get me kicked out of the synagogue before I get in there. And my integration is going to be cooked. But I'm swapping teams. I'm going with Jesus. I am one of his disciples. And his response to the Pharisees' inquisition in verse 30 is, is quite something. It's worth reading out again in full. Read with me in verse 30. 
where he says to the Pharisees, now that is remarkable. You don't know where Jesus come from, comes from, but he opened my eyes. Oh, we know that God doesn't listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. No one has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this Jesus were not from God, he could do nothing. You see what he's saying? The evidence is incontrovertible. It's obvious where Jesus comes from. God doesn't listen to sinners. If he opens the eyes of man born blind, Jesus is from God. Otherwise, he could do nothing. So this fellow, he's well on the way to getting there, and he's just following the signs, right? But though his eyes have been opened physically, he's not yet seeing things crystal clearly. Some impairment remains. Some clarification is required. And so you see there in verse 35, when Jesus initiates contact with him, again, he says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? That is the the powerful figure you read about in Daniel 7 in the Old Testament who is given authority from God himself. And, and the guy's like, well, I sure would like to know who that is. And Jesus says, you are looking at him. You are talking with him right now. And the man responds by worshipping him literally on his knees. The best day of his life. Woke up blind. Goes to bed seeing. Woke up a beggar. Goes to bed a disciple and worshipper of the one they call Jesus, a healer, a prophet, and the Son of Man, given authority by God himself and sent to him. He is the subject of a miraculous work of God, and now he becomes subject and the devotee of the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who opens the eyes of the blind in fulfillment of the great messianic hopes. It's the best day of his life. Because the blind will see. So friends, I do have to ask you, how is your spiritual vision? Because this unlikely subject, born blind, bringing nothing to the table, is the only one who sees Jesus clearly. Physically, I mean, he sees, sure. But spiritually, I mean, crystal. Jesus is not only a healer, he's not only a prophet, He's not only a godly man who does the will of God, sent from God he is, with divine authority to bring sight and salvation and light and life. When you think about Jesus, is that who you see clearly? Because two pairs of designer frames for $199 is not going to help you here. The blind will see. We also um, learn in this story that though the blind will see, uh, the seeing are often blind. That is, those who should be able to see clearly are blind to an obvious reality. The seeing are blind. I've just said the only person in this story who sees clearly is the blind guy. I mean, that's just weird, but one of the wonderful ironies of the story. The disciples, they're preoccupied with a theological question about the connection of sin and suffering. The neighbors of the blind man, they're confused about whether he really is the guy they grew up with. Uh, When the Jews sent for his parents, they didn't prove much better. What a lost opportunity, don't you feel? For them to stand with their lad and celebrate his miraculous healing, but instead out of fear that they might be driven out of the synagogue, out of social standing, perhaps they even feared being driven out of standing with God, they leave their son to dry out on his own. You ask him, 
He's our boy. I mean, he was born blind. I don't know. He's old enough to answer for himself. You ask him. (laughs) What a lost opportunity. But really, the blindest of all are are the ones who ought to have had the best sight, don't you think? The Pharisees, devout people. People just like us in many important ways, uh, who read the Scriptures carefully like we do, who have weeks of prayer and fasting like we do, who aim to feed the poor and, and help the marginalized like we do. And yet they cannot help themselves but turn a miraculous healing into a religious controversy. Verse 14, have a look. Jesus made the mud and opened the man's eyes on the Sabbath. Yes, technically Jesus breached their stricter standards, although not Scripture itself. Firstly, he healed someone, which you're allowed to do according to the Pharisees, only in scenarios of grave danger, so not really this guy. And he kneaded together some mud and he anointed the guy's eyes with it. So three strikes. Well, he can't be from God, they reason in verse 16, if he's done all that. And even when you sense some division among them, you know, just a chance that common sense might prevail, they refuse to acknowledge the obvious. I was blind, but now I can see. We don't know this Jesus. We only know Moses now. He had the ear of God and he wasn't short of a miracle. I was blind, but I can see now. No, you were steeped in sin at birth. Can't listen to you. I mean, that's bad theology, but it's kind of missing the obvious, isn't it? My eyes were open. (laughs) I was blind, but now I see. I am standing in front of you, eyes wide open. How is it that I can see? And you can't. Must be because you won't. The blind will see, but the seeing are blind, refusing to acknowledge what is plain before them. Got a little riddle for you guys. I know you like riddles. See how you go with this one. I'm only one color, but not one size. Stuck at the bottom, yet I easily fly. Present in sun, but not in rain, doing no harm and feeling no pain. That's tricky, isn't it? Give you another clue. I'm as big as an elephant, but I weigh nothing at all. I am, of course, a shadow. I'm a shadow. Such a clever guy, that Scott should really listen to him more. I'm a shadow. Now, as the chapter nears the end, we see the light of the world, Jesus. He, he dispels darkness on the one hand, but he casts shadows, especially the shadow of judgment on the other. The blind will see, but the seeing are blind. That's a problem because it means they're subject to judgment. Let's find out how Jesus puts it in verse 39. Read along with me. For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Down in verse 41, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin, but now you claim you can see your guilt remains. Boy, that sounds a little confrontational, doesn't it? Of course, um, Jesus didn't come primarily for judgment. He primarily came to save sinners. He brings the light of salvation to those who are blind and humble enough to admit it. That is, to those of us who admit that we don't have all the answers and who know that light and life and salvation come from outside of us from beyond our personal and family resources, 
But the light of the world doesn't just bring salvation, it also casts the shadow of judgment over those who refuse to come to the light, despite the available evidence standing before them, perhaps staring at you right in front of your eyes. And I think that's the real problem with spiritual blindness, that kind of deliberate refusal to acknowledge Jesus who it is, uh, for who he is. It attracts the judgment of God rather than the salvation of Jesus. You don't want to be in that place, friend. And I've been trying to work out all week, like in what ways are we, even maybe especially those of us who claim to be Christians, may have been Christians for decades, in what ways are we likely to fall into the Pharisees' folly? What can we learn from them? Because I think they are like us in so many ways. Some people will say, well, their problem is they pay too much attention to the Scriptures. But that can't be right because in the chapter beforehand, Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Like if you remain in my word, that's how you know you're my disciples. He even said of himself, I know God and I keep his word. So their problem can't be that they pay too much attention to the details I think the problem was they paid too little attention to their hearts. You know, there was just a hardness to them. They had lost all teachability. There was no suppleness of heart to see a wonderful work of God unfolding right in front of their eyes. I guess it's ultimately a reflection of whether you know God and love him, isn't it? That you can still learn things about him. That you can still see him at work in you, chipping away at parts of you smoothing over some of your rough edges and you can still see him at work before you in the lives of others and in other situations around the world pharisees would not listen to a man born blind because they had already made up their minds even though he stood before them miraculously healed seeing clearly you were steeped in sin at birth why would we listen to you because I was blind an hour ago and now I can see. But they, they could not be taught, already made their mind up, even when the evidence was right before them, talking and seeing. I think we're going to find ourselves in real trouble whenever we think we know it all already. There's nothing more for me to learn. I can't change my mind. And I can't change my life on account of something God says in Scripture. It's just too hard. At this stage of my life, where I'm at, you know, at the bottom of the happiness curve or whatever it is. My vision of Jesus, it was so clear when I became a Christian, when I was in my youth, when I was involved in my university days or whatever it was. It's so clear that it's now cloudy. His word in my ears, it's just muffled. Do I see him? Do I hear him as clearly as I once did? Or am I only hearing and seeing what I kind of want to hear and see? Only what I've already decided that I can bear. Only what won't cause me to change too much because that just feels like a bridge too far at this stage of my life. I think a good sign that you see Jesus clearly is is not just because you've got a a teachable and supple heart, ready to respond to his word and works. 
I think another sign is that your love for him drives out your fear of what following him might involve. I reckon we all kind of sympathise with the blind man's parents to a point. I mean, they must have known what had happened to him, the miraculous thing that had happened. But they were just too afraid to go public. And yet their son, who in a single day gained the opportunity to reintegrate into normal life, was content to give it up because his love for Jesus drives out his fear of the consequences of following Jesus. So in a very simple way, this man encourages us not to be afraid to go public with our love for Jesus and not to be overwhelmed by fear of what it means to follow him. Friends, I really do think it is not just the first disciples in John 9 who can do the work of the one who is the light of the world as long as it is day. We too can shed light on the light of the world just by going public with our own lives and sharing our own stories because we love him more than we fear others. Big problem, isn't it, when you cannot see clearly? You have a lot of mishaps. Keep bumping into things. But Jesus is the light of the world. Lord, give us eyes to see him clearly and give us supple hearts so that we can hear him all the days of our lives and give us a love for him that drives out our fear of what might result from following him. I'm going to pray those last few lines as a prayer. Why don't you join with me as we pray them together? Lord God, we recognize Jesus as the light of the world. Give us eyes to see him clearly. Give us supple hearts that we might hear him all the days of our lives. Give us a love for him that drives out our fear of what might result from following him. And in Jesus' name and for his glory, we pray these things. Amen. Now, in a few moments, we're going to have our collection song, which is the way we normally finish our